the king's good servant, but God's first. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, we come now to the last meditation, which really concerns ourselves here, and also when we've left the retreat house and have only the memories behind us. If I were thought that through the retreat, those of us who've always tried to do it would still continue day by day to adore God, then I would feel that the retreat had been a success, and Thomas More today would be very little concerned with the politics of his own age. Right at the very start of the retreat, I did quote to you the words of Professor Seabohm, who was a very great scholar of the last century. In all ages, more or less, there is a new school of thought rising up under the eyes of an older school of thought. And probably in all ages, the men of the old school regard with some little anxiety the men of the new school. Now, I believe you and I have to face that very much today. And we have to ask ourselves, at least I do to myself, what would St. Thomas More advise me or you now? Last night you saw The Man for All Seasons, and a wonderful film it is. I can't recall now, I see some years since I saw it last, but the man who sat in judgment on Thomas More the Duke of Norfolk, his history is worth noting. He just escaped the scaffold himself by about three seconds because Henry VIII had palsy and was dying totally feeble and tried to sign the death warrant but couldn't raise his hands. So he got off that old chap where his son was beheaded, where his grandson was beheaded, and I think I'm right in saying where his great-grandson it was, who is now a canonized saint in the Catholic Church, St. Philip Howard, who died in the tower. The whole of that family of the Howards is a sort of massacre. For nearly a hundred years, the king cut their heads off, including the Duke of Norfolk's two nieces, poor Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, both victims of Henry VIII. Cromwell died, with his, had his head chopped off, Moore and Fisher and the Carthusians, and the only man who got away totally free was Rich, the man who perjured himself at the trial of Moore and Fisher. Rich became Speaker of the House of Commons, as Thomas More had been. He then went on to become Lord Chancellor. He became a very devout daily communicant when Bloody Mary came to the throne and just had time to get rid of his... Catholic statues and pop up 39 articles before Elizabeth arrived on the scene. He died a peaceful death, about the only one, all the rest hacked to pieces by Henry VIII. It always puzzles me why Ridley doesn't write a life of Henry VIII. <laughs> Chambers rightly puts down that the Catholics and Protestants who died in so sincerely had much more in common. The common enemy was the king and the men like Rich and Paulet, who stole all the Abbey lands and have kept them ever since. Right through English history, and they're the very chaps who you elected to your Congress when you started. The clique of rich people, and in our case, with a monstrous king, a kind of Idi Amin in Tudor outfits. <laughs> 
So really, in a way, it's a very tragic thing that Moore wasn't the only one to die, and the sad thing for him was that he didn't really want to be in court at all. He first wanted to be a hermit. Then he knew that God led him, or felt sure he did, so he married, had his wonderful school of nearly 70 kids by the end, and they all kept together and loved him, and he loved to be a local lawyer, a very important man in one small city, not in the court at all. He never wanted to go to court, and he loved his police court work, and he was a good lawyer and a commercial lawyer, most of his work to do with the wool trade. How little he wanted to go to court, you can see from what Erasmus wrote of him, his dearest friend. Erasmus wrote, he had made up his mind to be contented with this position, which was sufficiently dignified without being exposed to serious dangers. He had been thrust more than once into an embassy in the conduct of which he had shown great ability, and the king in consequence would never rest until he had dragged him into court. Dragged him, I say, and with reason, for no one was ever more ambitious of being admitted to court than he was anxious to escape it. But as this excellent monarch was resolved to pack his household with learned, serious, intelligent, and honest men, he especially insisted upon having more among them, with whom he was on such terms of intimacy that he cannot bear to let him go. If serious affairs are in hand, no one gives wiser counsel. This is all written in the present indicative. If it pleases the king to relax his mind with agreeable conversation, no man is better company. Difficult questions are often arising which require a grave and prudent judge, and these questions are resolved by more in such a way that both sides are satisfied, and yet no one has ever induced him to receive a present. What a blessing it would be for the world if magistrates like Moore were everywhere put in office by sovereigns. Erasmus's evidence that Moore never wanted to go to court. When I mentioned Utopia, the key page in Utopia, of course, is the debate right at the beginning between Heisleday and Moore himself, Moore taking both parts. He actually wrote this when he was deciding should he accept the king's offer to become a civil servant and join the court. And there you have what Moore says in his debate, trying to persuade Heidelberg to settle down with a good safe income and all the perks that go with serving the government. Moore said, it is exactly the same in a state and the consultation of kings. If erroneous beliefs cannot be plucked out, root and all, if you can heal long-established evils to your satisfaction, you must not therefore desert the state and abandon the ship in a storm, because you cannot check the winds. Nor should you force upon people strange and unaccustomed discourses which you know will have no weight with them in their opposite beliefs. But you should try and strive obliquely to settle everything as best you may. And what you cannot turn to good, you should make as little evil as possible. For it is not possible for everything to be good unless all men are good. And I do not expect that that will come about for many years. It will come about never, till, uh, with sans teeth, sans eyes. 
That was what Moore said. You mustn't abandon the state because of the winds. You must try and save the ship. And if you can only do a little good or make evil a little less evil, that's all you can do. But that's worth doing. That's why he went to court. Heidelberg, on the other side, answered exactly what Moore, Moore said, both sides. The only result of this course, said Heidelberg, would be to make me as mad as the people whose insanity I'm trying to cure. In other words, don't go anywhere near public life because they're all cracked. And there you saw the massacre of all those people by Henry VIII, and nobody ever blames him. That the thing that was rotten was the king himself, a worldly court grasping for money, not the Catholics or Protestants. They were all these people who they turned in English history into the rich Whigs. The word is still used, I believe, over here, if very old people. The Whig landlords were the people with the king who caused all this disaster, which has lasted till today. When you look around the world today and you see the people who suffered for religion on both sides, certainly we see the Catholic side, but you think of the Protestant martyrs, including Ridley's great uncle, or you look at people, the Huguenots, or you look in Ireland on both sides, or you look in India where it's going on, or you look in anywhere now, Turkey, wherever you go, religion and politics seem to cause this disaster. More saw that. There was a strange incident in about 1520-something when the world, the Europe, Western world, which was the world, was ruled by three young men, all pretending to love learning, all devout Catholics, and all had very wonderful friends. The King of France was about 20, Francis I, Henry VIII was about the same age in England, and the Emperor Charles of the Austria Empire, he was about 22. Erasmus and Moore and Collet and Grossin and Lineker and on the continent, there were very learned men, rather like when Kennedy had his sort of first um, government all from Harvard, uh, they thought if all these clever men come in and help, these three young men mean well and we can stop all that happened. After all the religious wars and for three or four hundred years and all the hatreds and all that, that Moore and his Erasmus, they failed. That these three young men, given power and given people who were only interested in wealth, they produced a whole world of people who've made all these wars possible. It's said that there are religious wars, but the real trouble is worldliness, which of course Moore saw. Well, he is, as you know, he went to court. And Ridley's last offence, for which I hope he goes to confession, is, can you imagine anything so outrageous as this? That when Cromwell, who, was, who died at the, at the scaffold, when Cromwell came into the king's service just after Moore, Moore was an older statesman then and Lord Chancellor, Moore said, Mr. Cromwell, you are now entering into the service of a most noble, wise, and liberal prince. If you will follow my poor advice, you shall in your counsel give unto his grace, ever tell him what he ought to do, but never tell him what he is able to do. So shall you show yourself a real faithful subject and a right wise worthy counsellor. 
For if the lion knew his own strength, how were it for any man to rule him? Jasper Ridley adds to that, though Roper does not seem to have realized it, Moore was advising Cromwell to deceive his prince about the extent of his power and to give him misleading advice in order to further what Moore considered to be the interests of the church and the struggle against heresy. Fancy accusing any politician for being cheating or deceiving his master by telling him what he ought to do rather than what he oughtn't to do. There's no footnote or no possible cheating about it. The, the error there is that Risley wants to consider what his moral values are. So poor Moore and all the others died. Now, uh, the, the slaughter of everybody the king hated, including poor Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, both victims of a horrid world, and it goes on today, all that we can think about. And then we see the great difference between Moore and everybody else, even John Fisher and others, being a lawyer, he tried, as he said he would in Utopia, to make things a little better until it came to the absolute crunch what you can't give way on. So Moore tried, as he knew when he became Lord Chancellor that he was doomed, especially when the king fell in love with some, uh, wanted to divorce his wife, and especially when you got the desire to get the monastic lands into the hands of the rich, Moore knew he had a losing game. His reign as chancellor was really, in a way, pathetic. And, and eventually, this man says that his reply was very muted. The great thing with Moore was he could always have been successful if he'd wanted. At any moment, if he had accepted what the king wanted, he could have been far more great than rich or any of the others, or the Duke of Norfolk. Unlike the others, they were put to death because Cromwell and all those, Anne Boleyn, they would have died anyway. Henry VIII didn't like them. Henry VIII loved more. He only had to say yes on one point. Now, what was that point? More being a lawyer like yourselves, so many of you, and therefore highly cunning, more took jolly good care not to die for the wrong thing. He knew he was going to be done in, uh, but he gave way. For example, he eventually said quite rightly uh, that if the king married Anne Boleyn and the parliament made her queen, he would have no grievance. He didn't go to the wedding. He was invited. He wouldn't go to the wedding. But if the king likes to change his queen, that's okay. So he didn't protest on that or that Anne Boleyn's children should succeed. So uh, he didn't protest on that. He only protested that finally, he went on and on and on, as you saw last night. Ultimately, he died on one point when Henry VIII proclaimed himself the head of the church. Then, for the first and only time, Moore knew that now we were overstepping the mark, that he couldn't do it, that a law that extended all over Christendom could not be changed by Parliament of one country. In other words, Thomas More died for the power of the Pope. He made it very clear. He didn't die because of the divorce, though he hated that, but he died because of the Pope. And that's why at the end of our retreat, I feel that you and I, whether we're Catholic or not, we've simply got to face 
the basic thing. At any second, up to the very end, he could have been freed from prison, gone back to his garden and his library with his children and sat down. Uh, but that's the, when it came to that, Moore couldn't accept it. Because the sad thing was that Collett and Moore and all the early scholars, they had wanted to reform the church. The church was in a very bad way. They wanted to reform it from within. Now suddenly, because the king wanted another girl, Henry VIII decided to reform the church from outside. And that Moore could not accept.